This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Greetings, everyone. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for gathering of your people from across and around the world, and that we have this in common. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, our Redeemer. Thank you that you are here in our midst by your promise, because we are gathered in your name. Come, Lord, and speak to us through your word. Open our hearts by your Spirit and speak what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is part four for me, out of four. The first three were creation, fall, and redemption. And now we're moving forward to the future with glorification. Big subject. I don't claim to know it all inside and out. It's our future. So, some of it is speculative, I think. Some of it is certainly open to interpretation. But we will do our best with this big subject. I'm also linking together in my whole preaching series here, faith and art. Today will be a little bit different because um, I don't have pictures for you, but I do have an object that I'll be showing you a bit later. Um, I'm also kind of drawing on what I've been doing here as your artist in residence for the past six months, thinking about a book which will hopefully come out of all of this. Originally, it was going to be something like Potter and Clay. There's a, a famous book, I don't know if, if any of you have heard of, called, I think it's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, if I remember. Well, this was kind of my Potter and Clay version of that, but it's kind of expanding rapidly beyond that theme of just potter and clay into other media as well, which, which I work in and other people work in too. There's probably not a whole lot of people in this room who would call themselves potters. How many people have ever sat at a potter's wheel here? Okay, a few. That's not bad. Good. I don't know if any of you had the experience growing up of seeing someone at a potter's wheel on TV and thinking, wow, that's magic, I want to do that. How does he or she make that clay move like that into these forms? Well, we'll be going through the whole process of making a piece of pottery today as, as part of my sermon, from the very beginning to the very end, as part of what I'm, what I'm preaching on. But the book will probably expand beyond that if I ever get the thing finished. So thank you, Bart, for asking me to take this role of artist in residence. It's been challenging and delightful and fulfilling and thrilling and a lot of other things and stretching. And I'm really glad to have been given this chance to link these great themes of our faith and art in general and to talk about them in many different aspects. Today, as I said, we're talking about glorification, which is our future. So, one of the central passages, one of the, the, the central verses for today is Philippians 1, verse 6. Could we have that, please? This is Paul writing to the Philippians. Paul is being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That speaks very much of what awaits us. And Paul is confident of this, and we should be too, that God, who began the work, is going to finish the work. I want that to be something that hopefully will drop into our hearts and sit there. It's not dependent just on us, thank God. It's dependent on God starting something, doing something, and finishing something. Amen? Amen. Because without that hope, we're kind of hopeless. So we have the hope that we are going to be finished. God is going to complete this work in us. I started thinking about this sermon waking up early one morning a number of weeks ago and letting that verse kind of echo back to me from the place that it is written from, which is the future. It was written in the past, but it refers to the future. God is there. He's not just, I I don't like to speak to him as God who knows the future, but God who is at all times, in all times. He's in the past, he's here with us now, and he is, not he will be, but he is in the future. So I I don't say that God knows the future, God is already there. And because of that, he sees us already like that. He sees us already completed by his work in us and through us. So that's the way that I see God, already seeing us perfected, which gives me the faith to relax a bit and to let him do what he's going to do. Another thing I've been noticing the last few weeks is that one of the groups of people in the city that I call the... uh, You might call them the secular prophets. I don't know what else you would call them. The graffiti artists of the city have caught up to one of the words that I believe is one of the defining words of our age as a a description, as an adjective. And I've started seeing the word written in English in graffiti around the city. And the word is confused. And to me, it's, it's prophetic of where we're at. It's something that I've been mentioning here and there for for years already, that that this is where our age is at. We are in a place of confusion in a lot of different ways. Thank God that God is not confused. Thank God that he knows what he's doing with us and that he will perfect us, despite the painful, ugly, distorted, distorting confusion that maybe many of us feel that we're living in, in this world. The the misinformation, there's so much information out there and also so much misinformation and disinformation and lies. And sometimes maybe we we despair, thinking, "How, how can I find the truth? How can I dig into that haystack and pull out a needle of truth when there is so much that is wrong, that is lies, that is distortions, and so on? Well, God is not confused. God is not the author of confusion. And God himself is not confused. And he will bring us through confusion to the place where we should be, which is perfection in him. But it's going to take time. So I want us to think about this word, perfection. It's bouncing back from the future. One of of my favorite genres of literature is science fiction. And this is kind of how I I would describe this, this word. It's out there in the future, and it's bouncing back echoing back to us where we are now, where we are right now. Perfection is what awaits us, but it's bouncing back, echoing back from there to here to give us hope. It's also reaching further back than that into our past 
And I don't mean that our past can be changed because our past is written, right? It happened, or we did it, or it was done to us. Whatever those bits of our past are that we're not happy about, that are painful to remember, they are there. They are the past, and they, they won't be changed. But this word perfection has the power to lessen the impact of those things on our lives now if we let it. God will heal us. And I'm not saying that necessarily he's going to go back to those places with us and change them, because that's, that's not the way that I see it. But he can change us now from who we were, what happened to us, what we did, the things that we regret, our sinfulness, our weakness, whatever. And he can, he can allow us to have hope that he is moving us towards perfection now, as well as what's going to happen to us in the future. This is the glorification that awaits us. We have frustrated lives, but that is waiting for us. Let us also look at Romans 8, 31 to 39, please. So this is in the middle of a long exposition. What then, after everything that Paul has said up until now in this book to the Romans, what then shall we say in response to these things that Paul has already mentioned? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? That's us. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's not all a happy story or a happy picture. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't want to say to the devil, do your worst, but that is a long list of things that cannot separate us from God, including all of creation, including the highest of God's creation who, who fell to become the lowest. Not even he can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But there are daily or hourly skirmishes along the way in this battle which will determine our path through life until we get to that perfection. I also want us to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is another passage that's been on my heart very much. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. 
But we know that when Christ appears in the future, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So this is our part. God is going to make us perfect, and we are going to purify ourselves. Because why? Because we have this hope that when we see him, by a process of transformation, we shall be like him. That's, that's so amazing to think about. You see something, and you become like it. You see that one, and you become like him. That is what is waiting for us. Just looking at him is going to transform us out of our cocoon, out of our crawling along the ground with many legs into a winged creature of glory that will be splendid and amazing that we cannot imagine the glory of now. There's a long part in Revelation, but I think before we get to that, we're going to start looking at at the process of making something out of clay on the wheel. So the first part of that is that clay is mined. It's dug from the ground. It's taken from its home. Unless it's porcelain. Porcelain is the white clay that, that needs a very high firing temperature. Porcelain does not occur nat- naturally in nature, whereas earthenware, the low-firing clay, and stoneware, the high-firing but earthen-looking clay, they do occur naturally in nature. We dig them out of the ground and we make something out of them. That's the first step. We take it out of its home and we gather it together and we have this raw material called clay. Then, maybe the clay is thinking, oh great, now that I've been taken away from home, something is going to happen to me. But usually what happens first is the clay is abandoned for years. And one of the traditions that they have in Japan, especially with porcelain, they want to get their clay, their porcelain, as plastic as possible, which means as malleable or as moldable as possible. And the way to do that is to put it away for years Years. There's a tradition. In Georgia, the tradition is that the wine that I make, some of it I'll put aside for my son's wedding. And it will be put in a big crevry, a big amphora in the ground, and kept for my, for my first son's wedding. 20 years, however long many years that'll be. And that wine will be, it'll be wonderful. But in Japan, they do the same thing with porcelain. They put it away for the first son's wedding, and then it is dug out of the place where it was stored And then it's ready to use. After a couple of decades, this clay has become wonderfully malleable and able to be molded, which is really what the potter or the the, the sculptor is after. So it's not just dug from the ground, but it's abandoned and forgotten about maybe for decades before it gets to that point. And the clay at this point is wondering, what is going on? Why am I in the dark? Why am I in the cold? Why is nothing being done with me? Why was I taken away from my home? This is so frustrating. Has he forgotten about me? Has she forgotten about me? That is what the clay might be thinking. Then the next stage is the potter will take some of that raw material and he'll start doing what's called wedging it, which is working it by hand like this, usually in the same direction. And what they're trying to do is to get it as ready as possible for that wheel. It's a painful process. It's a lot of squeezing. Every little air bubble has to be forced out of that clay. Because I don't know if you know what happens if you get an air bubble in a piece of clay that's being fired. It'll blow up. Simple as that. The whole piece will be ruined. One little air bubble that's stuck within a piece of dry clay. When you fire it, it'll make it explode. So we have to have all that air 
worked out of the clay and the clay to be tortured into this position that is ready for sculpture or hand building or working on the wheel. That's the next step. We call it wedging. Then the potter takes the piece of clay and throws it down on the wheel hard because it has to stick to that wheel because if it flies off, it's going to be useless. So the clay has to be stuck on the wheel hard. Ow! That's painful! Not easy being a piece of clay. Goes through all these different things that happen to it before it even starts looking like anything interesting. This is the life of clay. So once that happens, then the next process is centering. And all of these processes are important, but if you don't have a piece of clay on the wheel that is centered, then again, it's going to fly off and be useless. If it's perfectly centered, then it's rotating on the wheel, but it's also still its center is the center of the wheel, and now the potter can say, this is ready for the real work. This is when the potter puts his or her hands into the clay after forcing it gently but firmly into being exactly centered. Then it is ready to start pushing it down or raising it up, making walls out of it, making it go out and in again. You've seen pottery done, yeah? For me, it was magic, and I always wanted to try it. And finally, I had the chance when I was 19 years old, I think was the first time I ever sat down at a potter's wheel. But the potter is working this clay on the wheel now that it's perfectly centered so that he or she is now free to, to make the form that they're looking for. And it's, it's on the wheel, it's usually going to be some kind of vessel. So something that you can put liquid into or use to cook with. If you're a Georgian, you might want to make lobio and, and, uh, and, and serve it in a clay pot or ajab sandali or the other dishes of Georgian cuisine which are served in a clay pot. But the potter is now making this vessel of whatever shape. It might be a, f a flat plate. It might be a bowl. It might be something tall and thin. It just depends on what the potter wants, what he or she is interested in at that particular moment. So this is where it starts looking really interesting. We're getting a form that is finally coming out of the formless clay that up until that point could have been just anything. But now we start to see the skill of the potter and something interesting is happening. Then it gets cut off the wheel with a piece of wire underneath it and carefully put in a place where it can dry out slowly. If you dry it too fast, it'll crack because parts of the clay vessel usually are thicker than other parts and it has to dry slowly and evenly over days it can take for that piece of pottery or sculpture, whatever it is, to be dried. It has to be done very slowly and carefully so that it dries out evenly. Otherwise, the thin bits will dry out first, the thick bits will dry out more slowly, and you'll just get cracks, and that makes it useless. So that is another thing that, that takes a long time. And again, the piece is probably thinking, why is this taking so long? I don't have patience for this. I just want to be finished. I want to be of use and pleasure to the potter and to the potter's guests. But no, this has to happen. We get to the stage finally where it's called bone dry, dry as a bone. There's no liquid water at all left in that piece of clay, whatever form the clay takes, whether it's a handmade sculpture or a wheel-thrown piece. Then it's very, very fragile at that point. If you just touch it, if the walls of it are thin, it can break like an eggshell. 
but it's bone dry. And then it's ready for perhaps what you might call the most difficult stage in the life of a piece of clay. And we know what that is, right? It's the kiln. <laughs> it's the place of testing, the place where it gets fired. And there are usually two firings with, with a piece of clay. The low temperature firing, which is still hundreds and hundreds of degrees and takes hours and hours, turns the clay from bone dry into a thing that can no longer be dissolved back into water. Until then, before it's fired the first time, you can take that clay object. If you put water in it, it's going to go, it's going to turn back into mud, which is what clay actually was originally. But once you've fired it the first time, the bisque firing, it's called, or the biscuit firing, it's no longer water-soluble. It's no longer dissolvable back into mud. You can now put water in it, and it'll hold water. Um, then the, the final stage in making the clay, after then it can be glazed if you want to glaze it. And glaze is like paint, except that when you glaze a piece of pottery inside or out with this extra substance. You then fire it again, and that's usually a high temperature firing, and the glaze, which comes from the same word for glass, becomes like a surface of glass on the piece of the clay. It adds shine, it adds more interest, it might give the clay a different color. There are glazes that are called crystalline glazes. And believe it or not, with those glazes, if you, if you fire it very, very slowly, like it might take two days to bring that glaze firing up to temperature, keep it at that temperature, and then cool it down again very, very slowly, and you get crystals forming on the surface of the glaze. If you want to Google an image of crystalline glaze, you will be amazed at what those things look like. They look like frost on the surface of a vessel. It's more magic. There's another thing that can be done with a clay vessel, depending on the kind of glaze you're using. But this last firing, whether it's glazing or not, is, is called the high firing, high temperature firing. And with stoneware and porcelain, it's well over 1,000 degrees. It's a very, very hot temperature. And again, the clay is probably thinking, wow, how am I going to endure this? And in fact, the clay is being taken to the point which is called vitrification. And if you took it much beyond that temperature, it would melt. It would start to melt and slump. Can you imagine something that is the same composition as rock or as glass being heated up to the point where it starts to melt? Well, you don't want to take it that far, but you do want to finish the clay so that it's as hard and solid and beautiful and permanent as it can be. We have pieces of clay, either fragments or whole pieces, in our museums that are thousands of years old, thousands of years old, from places like Egypt and India and wherever they were first working with this stuff. You know, so even if a clay vessel gets broken, the shards, the pieces, can still last for thousands and thousands of years because they're basically of the same composition as rock. So now what happens? Well, now the potter takes his piece and he looks at it. He says, it's finished. It's done. I like it. You may not believe this, but the very first time I ever sat at a potter's wheel, this came out. I think a lot of it was luck. <laughs> I'm not a very practiced or a very skilled potter, but I got lucky the first time. I signed this piece, number one, 1987. 
and it has traveled with me around the world, and it's still here in one piece. It's a piece of stoneware. It's got a rough surface. You can see that you can put something inside it. I don't even know what it's for specifically, but the main thing it does is make me happy. And this is what the potter makes clay vessels for. He gives them a place of honor in his home, he or she. They might put them on a little stand that can rotate. They show off this piece to the guests, and they say, I made this! Look what I made! Isn't it cool? Well, it's the skill of the potter or the luck of the potter, whatever, whatever you want to say. But this is now a permanent object which, given the right conditions, will last until the world itself burns because it's pottery. It's fired pottery. And that is something very, very pleasing if you've ever worked with clay, to have something that works, whether it's your first piece or you know, a piece that's hundreds of pieces down the line, whatever it is. So there it is. That's what the potter ends up with, something that they can be pleased with, something that graces their home, something that they put on a shelf, put on display for people to look at. That's what it's for. It might have a function, or it might simply be something interesting to look at and people to say, oh, wow, that's cool. I like that. It might be a sculpture, or it might be an actual vessel like that. And vessels can be used to put many different things in, as we know. So this is the life of clay from something that we dig out of the mud and the muck to something that we turn into an object of beauty, an object of pleasure that bears the imprint of the potter's hand and mind and eye all over it. The potter had a plan, or maybe the potter got lucky, and something nice resulted. But it was a long journey, wasn't it? It might be years and years to get from that muck to that finished object, being put aside, being made plastic, being thrown, being dried, being fired, and so on and so on and so on. And with a little bit of luck, with a little bit of skill, you end up with something that just pleases the potter. That's all it's for, is to bring pleasure to the potter. Guess what? That's us. We exist to bring pleasure to our maker. Every single one of us. Every single one of us who is in God by faith in Jesus is a work of art. And some of you might laugh at that. Some of you might think, what kind of a work of art am I? But we are not the ones to judge. Here's a couple more verses for you from Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things around, or you turn things upside down. As if the potter were thought to be like the clay, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Probably not. It's the potter who has all the skill. The clay is just a piece of mud after all, right? <laughs> And then the next one from a little bit later on in Isaiah. Yet you, O Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. You and I, every single one of us, we are the work of God's hand. He is going to finish what he started in each one of us. We don't know what that's going to be like. But every single one of us is going to be different. There are no two pieces that come off the wheel or out of the potter's hand that are the same. Every single one of them is unique. Every single one of them brings pleasure to the potter and to the guests of the potter, maybe even to each other. So this is the destiny that awaits us. We are handiwork of a maker, and he is going to finish us. 
I promise it to you because it comes out of his word and we can trust his word. It's not my promise, it's his promise. Written over and over and over again in scripture in so many different ways. He is going to finish what he started. It's going to happen. It's going to be done. We're going to be finished. We're going to be beautiful. And he's going to get pleasure from us. He's getting pleasure from us now, believe it or not. Because he sees the finished object. He's got it in his mind's eye already. And he knows that maybe we're being wedged, or maybe we're being thrown on the wheel, or maybe we're going through the low temperature but still hellish firing, or the high temperature firing, or we're being covered in glaze that's sticky and mucky, but out of all this is going to come a vessel that the potter goes, yeah, 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 I like it. It's good, it's useful, or it's just plain beautiful. Does that sound good? This is the glorification that awaits us. I also believe that everything that is in us, we're told not to cling to our lives because we'll lose them, but to let them go and they will be preserved. All the things that God is building into us, our personality, our gifts, our thoughts, our talents, those are going to be preserved up there and they're going to shine and twinkle in us and they're going to glorify God for the rest of eternity, each of us and our gifts in a unique way so that nothing that is of value in us is going to be lost. It's all going to be preserved. So that is just amazing to think about. Don't worry about what you've forgotten because up there, there will be no more forgetting. Don't worry about your tears because up there, they will all be dried. It's going to happen. We're going to be done. We're going to be finished. Thank God for that. I want to say this to you for hope, to find the strength to continue, because the end is not bitter, but sweet. And as someone who makes things, as well as someone who is being made, I can see, like many of us can, I think, both sides of this picture. We are made, and we are also makers. Some of us make children. Some of us make a marriage some of us make many, many different things. There are so many different things that we can create, you know. But in some way, we are all not only made by a maker, but we are also makers, every single one of us. So we are also reflecting his gifts as a maker when we make stuff as well. And ultimately, we are going to make things that glorify him in our lives and through our lives, through our words, through our actions, through simply who we are, we are going to display God's glory. If you have the time, look at Revelation, all of chapter 21, and yeah, let's say all of 22 as well, the end of the book, because those are really the glorious things that await us in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and earth, in which we have a role to play as the bride of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, the finished, perfected, sparkling, multifaceted, glorious, infinite, immortal beings that we are going to become. It's hard to overstate it. I don't think it can be overstated that what awaits us is magnificence. It's waiting for us. Perfection. In the midst of confusion, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of frustration, perfection awaits us. Thank you and amen. Lord, thank you. Thank you for planning on making us your vessels, each of us to hold, 
or reflect or display something beautiful. Each of us unique, but all of us summing up a part of you, for that is who we are and who we are going to be and who we are moving towards. Thank you for that, Lord. Let faith in that arise. Let hope in you arise in our lives that you are going to finish what you started. We trust you for this, Lord. We declare our trust in you as the maker, as the artist, as the potter to finish what you started. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF.com. Hyphen Georgia dot org. Thanks for listening.